the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this fine Monday from an overcast and very autumnal feeling Berlin uh, on October the 3rd. In fact, it's a national holiday here because it is German Unification Day, 33rd anniversary of the official reunification of Germany. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of today's episode of the Cycling Podcast. What will be a very autumnal episode, we hope, as we mainly look forward to the autumn race par excellence the race of the falling leaves in Lombardia, the Tour of Lombardy, which will take place on Saturday. Now, I've got two exceptional guests today um, joining us from a low-altitude training camp in Tenerife, I think, I think, more commonly known as a holiday. Uh, it's the two-time Tour de France stage winner, Giro d'Italia stage winner, Liège-Bastogne-Liège winner, two-time Vuelta a España stage winner, most importantly for the purposes of today, Giro di Lombardia winner, and as of, well, 10 days from now, he will be an acclaimed author. During our Vuelta coverage, he survived a biblical flood, proving himself to be the most resourceful of our podcast contributors. Just to bear that out, I learned from reading his book earlier today that he wooed his now wife, Jess, at an altitude training camp in Spain's Sierra Nevada by wowing her with his knowledge of Hamon Bellota, that is ham from pigs fed with acorns he was educated at st francis of assisi college but he doesn't talk to the animals he runs from pandas it is dan martin for the purposes of this podcast danilo martino dan how you doing introductions are getting better huh? well they are getting longer dan um and well let's introduce our next guest no larry warbass today so um they'll be slightly more concise i think than in previous weeks um joining us from pietrasanta in tuscany birthplace of one of italy's greatest ever poets Josue Carducci and now residence of one of Denmark's greatest poets that is him it's a man whose handiwork is so esoteric and refined that it's published in a newspaper called Weekend Avisen literally Weekend Opinions which doesn't even come out at the weekend he is the former CSC Sky and Green Edge PR surgeon Svengali leopard trek team manager he hates garlic and perhaps hates belgium because he thinks van helsing was a burly flandrian ruler and not a dutch vampire slayer he is the cycling dracula dracula who will sink his fangs into any meaty issue it is brian nygaard brian how are you how are relations with belgium well after the intro how can i not feel shining yeah, I'm really well. It's a sunny day in Tuscany. We have a brief stint of late summer, which looks to expand itself onto the last races of the season. I'm happy. And, and how are relations with Belgium? And none, there, are none, there is no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't get, there wasn't too much hate mail after your, in fact, you were quite conciliatory. You were quite diplomatic after Remco won the World Championships. Um, I expected a 50-minute anti-Belgian rant but we didn't get that in the end um, I should ask actually I should ask Dan to confirm to us whether you are on holiday in fact in Tenerife Dan is that the case? Yeah that's the case I mean I think I've often said this that I must be the, one of the few pro bike riders who's never been to training camp on Tayday on Tenerife but I've come here twice on beach holidays so it was uh, yeah I think the first in 2019 when I said I was coming to Tenerife, everybody assumed it was with a bike, and no, I just went to the beach. So, yep, that's uh, although 
I did have a slight inkling to actually bring my bike this time. It actually looks quite beautiful for riding. Where That never happened during my career, which is strange. How much cycling are you doing these days? Depends. I mean, it's uh, time time constraints. and But yeah, I try to ride two, three times a week. You know, I've got a new association now with Argon 18, so I'm working on... Uh, that's to motivate me to ride a bike now because I'm working with product development with them, which is kind of fun as well. So uh, yeah it's uh and get out on the mountain bike as well just diversifying my life like i said when i retired well dan we're coming up to well the one year anniversary of your retirement we'll talk about that later in the show the fact that you retired last year at the tour of lombardy in fact today um i said well i mentioned that you'd won generally lombardia lombardia in 2014 we've got someone who won lombardy someone who had a house for years on Lake Como. I also used to live in Lombardy for a short period, for a few months anyway. I lived in Milan. So there's a a genuine danger today of something that doesn't usually happen in the cycling podcast and has actually known what we're talking about. Um, So (laughs) look forward to that. Um, Brian, you're also going to regale us with your tales from the weekend at the Giro dell'Emilia but before we get to that before we get to the racing and the Lombardy chat gonna have a a brief a short um, in fact it's not actually that short because there's a lot of news we're gonna have a news roundup um, and we're gonna start with your old mate Remco Evenepoel Brian newly crowned world champion was welcomed back to Belgium and specifically the Grote Mart in Brussels on Sunday in scenes reminiscent of Eddie Merckx's reception in the same square after his first Tour de France victory in 1969 the only other times Belgian athletes have been hailed thanked honoured in such a manner in the same venue were after the 1986 and 2018 football world cups where they were knocked out in the semi-final and Remco was due to premiere is due to premiere his rainbow jersey in Bash Chimay Bash on Tuesday and um, plenty of racing over the weekend with the Giro d'Emilia we'll talk about that as I said um, won by Elisa Longo Borghini that was the women's race and Enric Mas won the men's race he beat Tadej Pogacar in Croatia the Crow race that is the Tour of Croatia it was won in the dying meters by Matej Mohoric over Jonas Vingegaard remember him by a single second, Vingegaard hadn't raced since the Tour de France, yet he won both hilly stages in Croatia ahead of the same rider, the 19-year-old Oscar Onley of Team DSM and the Scottish Borders. More about him in a short while. Also this weekend, Jumbo Visma's development team dominated the Ronde Lizard in the Pyrenees with Archie Ryan of Ireland, your countryman Dan taking the Queen stage, and Johannes Stauner Mittet of Norway, the GC. Few hundred kilometers further north, Brian Cockard won the Tour de Vendée, and at the same rate, Julien Simon of Total Energy wrapped up the French Cup title. Also in France, or pertaining to France, Naira Quintana announced that he will not ride for RKS Samsic in 2023. You may remember that just before the Vuelta, Nairo Mann announced that he had signed a three year contract extension. Only a few hours after that, it was reported that he had tested positive for the band painkiller tramadol during the tour de france which he finished in sixth place quintana will face no ban for that but he would lose the sixth place and hence he has lodged an appeal with the court of arbitration for sport to have the sanction overturned as to his future he said that he'll announce his new team in due course and it's been reported elsewhere that a french world tour team favorites to sign him um don't know about you, chaps, but I think a good educated guess there could be that Nairo Man is on his way to Cofidis. Any thoughts? They Any? denied it, didn't they? They said they, they weren't going to it. sign him. 
have they? I think so, yeah. More up to speed than me, Dan. Um, can't see him going to Group Armour somehow or AG2R, but we shall see. We shall see. Um, it's a brave move from any team after the obviously the, what's happening with the ongoing process. It's, it's almost like I'd expect any contract to kind of have a stipulation that if it's proven that, yeah, it'd be he's going to have a tough time getting a new team potentially. P- particularly a French team or an, an, an MPCC team. Um, I would, I would guess, I would pr- probably imagine that's one of the key reasons why RK uh, are not going to honour that three-year contract. Um, more transfer news since our last pod. Adam Yates is signing for UAE for, on a three-year deal has been confirmed, as has Lucas Purstelberger's move from Bora Hansgrohe to Bike Exchange Jaco. Also on the move is Lotto Sudal manager John Lelong, who will leave the relegation-threatened team at the end of the year. Not yet confirmed, but very much on the cards is Fernando Gaviria's move to Movistar. Going nowhere for the time being is Wout van Aert, who has extended his Jumbo Visma contract until the end of 2026. Meanwhile, the rumour of Mill is very much whirring with Ineos Grenadiers being linked with a shock move for Remco Avenepoel, the new world champion. Also, well, like Van Aert, has a deal until the end of 2026 with quick step Alpha Vinyl in his case. Fellow News reported that Dave Brailsford half-jokingly texted Patrick Lefebvre about buying Remco after his welter win, although Lefebvre has now called the speculation too stupid for words and said there is a zero chance of Remco leaving for Ineos. Nevertheless, there is still the faint whiff of something in the air with quick-step DS Davide Bramati also having to reject reports this week that he was going to Ineos. I can also tell you, chaps, that Ineos are preparing to make a significant announcement next week, I believe a couple of days after Lombardy, and it will be the signing of an important rider. Um, Any thoughts on that, chaps? (laughs) I mean... I, th- I, to be honest, um, I, I heard this a couple of days ago, and two names came to mind immediately. Well, this was mid sort of Remco frenzy, and there was a lot of talk about Avonapool, and I heard some stories last week about what happened between Remco and Patrick Lefebvre at the Vuelta. The, you know, it wasn't necessarily particularly harmonious between those two at all times during the Vuelta. So I thought that that might still be alive, that hypothesis. But then also, Primoz Roglic. Remember there were rumours a few weeks ago about Roglic maybe going to Ineos. Um, I spoke to Roglic's agent a couple of days ago, and he was quite cagey. So I don't think you can completely reject that. However, it has been reported this morning that Pauline Ferrand Prévost, the French, well, she's a road biker and a mountain biker, but best known for her mountain biking exploits, that she might be signing from, for Ineos on a, a deal, I guess, well, I, I suppose inspired by the Tom Pidcock deal um, at Ineos where he's competing in all sorts of disciplines. So it may be that, it may be that. Um, Brian, any thoughts? Be a good time to announce my comeback now. <laughs> it, could, it could indeed. That's a real, that's a real reason why I'm in, uh, in Tenerife. I'm up on tie day. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, my thoughts on this. Ro- yeah, my Ro- thoughts on this. Rog, Rog to Ineos, Rog to Ineos, Remco to Ineos. I mean, they. I guess they need to fill the gap until Bernal is up to par again to be a, a, a tour contender because they really need that, don't they? But I, I just don't think that Roglic will really fit the bill. I don't. I don't see him at this point in his career being a replacement for anyone like Bernal if he comes back to his his former best. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like they they, um, they need any more strong 
help us, and let alone if Roglic would even want to sign up for being that, because that's potentially what he's going to be if he stays at Jumbo um, to help out Vingegaard. So it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. And at, at, there was some speculation about his position and his uh, the kind of loyalty from both sides between him and the team. But uh, as I said, it was speculation, and it seems like they're very happy with Roglic. So, yeah, I, I'm a little bit mystified by all that. I mean, I mentioned Roglic's agent, uh, Mattia Galli, who's also Jonas Vingegaard's agent, I should add. Um, he's told La Gazeta de los Sport that Roglic was very happy at Jumbo Visma. However, I messaged Mattia last week. I said there's something in the air, the rumours in the air, and they're coming from Great Britain, or they've got something to do with Great Britain. Some of it was lost in translation. It was much pithier than that, um, <laughs> what I sent to Mattia. However, his reply was, Glasgow 2023. Um, he replied with those two two words, um, obviously half joking in the same way that Dave Brailsford was half joking with Patrick Lefebvre. He was also half joking about Glasgow 2023. So, you know, who knows? Um, maybe maybe Roglic's ultimate destination could be the UK, Great Britain, Ineos Grenadiers. Um, Brian, I said that you'd had a, a little jaunt at the weekend. You actually went to see some racing, didn't you? You went to the Giro dell'Emilia, which we mentioned in passing, the men's race won by Enric Mass, women's race by Elisa Longo-Borghini. Um, we're going to have a summary of the Giro dell'Emilia, not a rigid, regimented, strict um, affair that you usually give us in the 90-second roundup. But you are going to tell us how your day went. And in fact... Um, to give it an air, a certain air of formality, we are going to have the countdown and we are going to call it a stage summary or a race summary time trial. So you've got 90 seconds to tell us about your day in Bologna. Off you go, Brian. Yeah, thank you. With pleasure. I took the train from Tuscany to Reggio Emilia, the bordering uh, part of Italy where I live. Um, I had a wonderful day. Well, actually, arrived the night before. I had a beautiful meal at a place called Caminetto de Loro. I had so much for dinner that I actually didn't need lunch by the time I did myself walk all the way up to the Santuario di San Luca. The race started in Carpi, um, just northwest of Bologna, and then it took a little bit of a loop down and through the Apennines before concluding uh, with five laps on the now, I think, famous San Luca circuit in the outskirts of Bologna. And uh, it was a beautiful race, as always. It's just one of those races that... If you're a climber and you can't win anything else, you have a pretty good shot at winning uh, the Giro d'Emilia. And such it went. Uh, UAE was taking control for a long time. It looked like Pogaccia in usual style was going to drop everyone. That didn't happen because Enric Mas got the better of him and basically rode him out of his wheel. Uh, Pogaccia finished um, second and Pozzovivo third. Uh, all in all, it was an interesting dynamic. I was standing next to... Mauro Gianetti, the manager of Team UAE, telling him that Vingegaard had just won again in uh, Croatia, and he, mm. he he looks slightly worried uh, uh, coming in. I guess you know, defending champion of of Giro Lombardia uh, this weekend, uh, Vingegaard maybe has the upper upper hand, if not Enric Mas, who seems to be flying at the moment. I walked all the way down. It actually turned out I walked something around 20 kilometers uh, on Saturday, and and this is the important part: 40 flights of stairs. Such is the devastating. Yeah, such is the devastating climb, even for the spectators of Giro Emilia. I believe, isn't it the longest portico? I should know this because I wrote about in the, it, it is. in a in book. The, it's longest in the world or in Europe? Yeah, in the, in the world. 666 arches, I yeah. believe, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Brian, um, that was outstanding. To reward you, um, let's play a little bit of the, the, the sound, of the, the, the ambience that you harvested 
from the Giro dell'Emilia the weekend um, with your with your very high tech that was some of the atmosphere at the Giro dell'Emilia Dan I'm just looking down at your record in the Giro dell'Emilia you had a good ride there in your last season just well 12 short months ago in fact you were fifth is that right yeah, I went well there. I didn't know. Sick. I don't know. Sick. I can't remember Sorry. what it was all. Fifth or sixth, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, was, I think I was second in 2011, 2010 maybe. So it was uh, that's way back. But uh, but yeah, second behind, behind Robert Guessing when I really should have won. I really messed up the sprint there. But yeah, hey-ho. But it's always an interesting race. I mean, it's uh, it's such a different effort. Like Brian said, it's, there's no race like it on the calendar. And it's such a specific effort that yeah guys it can it comes out with a very strong winner a very worthy winner but also a different winner to what we usually see and obviously yeah it's Eric Massey's first ever one day race victory I believe and he just showed he had that uh, he had the legs on the last climb but I think the thing with Pogaccia is if the race had been another five laps he probably just would have done the same time up the climb another five times you know he just has that endurance that the other riders don't have which I think why he's uh, he's still be the man to beat in in uh, in Lombardia, but he's uh, although obviously as well, Pogacar's performance in Emilia was much better than it was last year. Mm. So I think that's that. That's, the signs are quite ominous. Yeah, and he, he doesn't love these exceptionally steep short climbs, does he? We've seen that at Fleshwell on over the last couple of years, um, and. The Madonna di San Luca is similar in some respects to Flesh Wallon. But we'll talk a bit more about Pogacar in um, the second part. Um, guys, I mentioned some of the racing that happened at the weekend. We talked about Vingegaard and Brian, you said um, that Pogacar seemed slightly put out when he was told about Vingegaard winning in Croatia. In our roundup, I said that the rider who had ridden him closest... In those two, on those two hilly days in Croatia, was a young Scot called Oscar Onley, just 19 years of age. He rides for Team DSM, and today I caught up with him about the fantastic week he had in Croatia. First of all, what a fantastic week! I mean, did you see that coming at all? Yeah, thanks. Uh, no, not really. I think. Yeah, when I first looked at the parkour uh, for this race, it was, I thought it wasn't going to be hard enough uh, for me. I, yeah, I had I felt really good in training and the last couple of races, but I would have liked a bit of a harder parkour in the uh, in the end. But yeah, I think I showed myself quite well this week uh, on the on the stages that suited me better. And was it the team's plan for you to be kind of protected on those particular stages, Oscar? Yeah, so we had uh, myself and Chris uh, going for GC, and yeah, it was kind of we we both did it in uh, Britain as well, the Tour of Britain. So we knew each other quite well from from That's that Chris race Hamilton, as well. Isn't it? Yeah, Chris Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then coming into the third third day, it on paper it suited me better the final climb. Uh, I think I'm a bit punchier than Chris and. So for that day, it was uh, all in for me in the final. And then, yeah, Chris just staying up there for the GC as well. And, I mean, obviously, the the thing that's got a lot of attention is who you were riding, who you are sprinting against, really, um, Vingegaard. 
Um, yeah, just talk to me. Well, talk to me a bit about the first one. I mean, some of the roads in Croatia, based on what I saw, particularly, I mean, the circuit yesterday, wasn't it? But then also that finish itself. I looked it up. I think there are 30,000 kilometers of proper roads in Croatia <laughs> and the race seemed to avoid <laughs> quite a lot of them. It was on it was on gravel and we see some riders struggle just kind of technically on gravel. It suits some, it's, it doesn't suit others. But um, yeah, tell me about that that climb and how you're feeling and well, how much of a surprise it was to find yourself next to Jonas Vingegaard. Yes, so the, the beginning of the climb was on gravel, but at that point it wasn't too steep and uh, we were all kind of together. It, so it was okay. It was only the last, I don't know, maybe 300 meters that were on kind of like a, a concrete road you'd get in one of those crazy steep Spanish climbs exactly, in the yeah. Vuelta or something. And yeah, that's that's where the climb really started. And uh, so yeah, coming into the climb, we just, we tried to be in as, as uh, close to the front as possible. And yeah, I think I was in the top three uh, going into the climb. And then I just tried to hold that position um yeah looking back actually i could have played it a bit smarter now that i know that i had the legs to win then yeah i could have uh, kind of sat in the wheels a bit more but it, at the time i was just kind of riding my own race and not really thinking about the others and Oscar, this year you've had good results on well, some really big climbs, you know, Mortirolo and Faunera and in the under-23 Giro, and then you won in uh, Cervinia, basically under mm-hmm. the Matterhorn, isn't it, in, in the Val d'Aosta. Yeah. Um, that was from a break. But the, the what we saw in Croatia, is that a fairly good snapshot of what your best ability is at the moment, would you say? Uh, to be honest, before this race, I would have said no, I think... I prefer the longer climbs, maybe not the the really long climbs, but uh, upwards of 10 minutes, 10, 10 to 30 minutes, I would say is kind of my the perfect length for me. But yeah, also this week, I, uh, I felt really good on the, the shorter climbs. But I think going forward, then, yeah, I want to focus more on the longer climbs for the GC, uh, yeah, to try and become more of a GC rider. This this is your second year at DSM, isn't it? Um, if we go go back in yeah. time, just to fill in a few biographical details. So you grew up in Kelso, um, a place in Scotland. The Scottish borders. I think it's more more known for horse racing, isn't it, than, than bike racing? Yeah, there's a yeah there's a race course in Kelso, and I think yeah I think it's quite popular there actually. But you grew up, well, watching bike races or at a certain point you started to watch bike races because they, they were starting outside of your outside the front door of your house. Is that right? Yeah, so my mum would always watch the, uh, the tour on uh, telly every year. And so I can't, yeah, I kind of followed that uh, each year. And then when I was, I think I was 10, good enough to do the, uh, the local uh, time trials with the, the club, which started yeah 200 meters outside my house and i went uh past my past my house so yeah i started there and then it kind of progressed to uh like more youth races in scotland and then britain and then as a junior then i uh started to go abroad more did you have any role models any sort of idols heroes back then oscar you're gonna say something that's gonna make me sound really old now i know you're gonna say someone like <laughs> i don't know remco Evenepoel. <laughs> no, I think the first person 
person I looked up was uh, Andy Schleck, actually. Okay. I think that, that they're, they're my earliest memories of him and Contador in the tour in the white and yellow jersey, just yeah. constantly attacking each other. So that's two thousand. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that just I about checks out. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. That's that, they're my first memories of uh, the tour. And um, Oscar, just looking ahead now. I mean, obviously this opens up um, some horizons for you, or certain certainly probably opened your eyes as to where you, you currently kind of sit alongside World Tour pros. I mean, what, tell me what is the plan, what plan has been sketched out for you either by the team or what plan have you got in your own mind for the next year or so? Yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll still be sticking to the initial plan of uh, another year in the development team. I think uh, it can be really beneficial for me to to, more to learn how to win the races. I think uh, this year I'm, I showed I was strong enough to be at the front. And now next year I can learn more in different situations uh, how to win the races. And then, yeah, hopefully from there on uh, I can make the step up to the World Tour. And then I hope I'm already at a higher level and uh, I can start competing for wins straight away in uh, in pro races, which would be nice. And who knows, beating Jonas Vingegaard in the Tour de France. Did um, did he did he say anything to you after either of those yeah, two stages? Actually, yeah, he was he was uh, yeah, it was really nice. He was talking to me after uh, both stages and saying how strong I was and that he was impressed. And yeah, it was it was nice to get to know him a little bit this week. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. You may well remember an athlete called Jack Thompson, the ultra-endurance cyclist who featured in an early episode of Explore and more recently was a guest on Mitch Docker's Life in the Peloton when we were working with Mitch on that show. Well, Jack is a super sapiens athlete and ambassador. He's talked openly about falling in love with cycling after coming out of drug rehab and over the years he's set himself some pretty incredible challenges and this year's goal is to climb 1 million vertical meters in elevation so he's really giving Pavel Sivakov a run for his money in the bid to ride into outer space. He's been averaging 20,000 meters of climbing a week including at least one Everesting ride of 8,848 meters. Uh, to find out more about Everesting we made a show uh, for Explore about that a couple of years ago. Anyway, Jack's doing all of this to raise a million euros for three mental health charities that are causes close to his heart. Jack's dad has type 1 diabetes, and so when he was growing up, Jack got an insight into the impact of glucose levels on his dad's health. And as an athlete, he's now using Super Sapiens to fuel most effectively for this incredible climbing challenge. This week, Jack is taking over the Super Sapiens Instagram stories ahead of World Mental Health Day on October the 10th. So check it out at Super Sapiens Inc. on Instagram. And best of luck to Jack as he continues to climb and, uh, well, overtake Pavel Sivakov as they head out into the stratosphere. To find out more about Super Sapiens itself, go to supersapiens.com. 
Before I hand back to Daniel, thank you very much for the incredible response to the MAP cycling podcast jersey and accessories. They've been shifting like the proverbial hotcakes. Some regions sold out very, very quickly of all the jerseys and also some of the accessories. And we've been blown away by the unprecedented response and the feedback. It was a bit too cold for me to wear the short sleeve jersey in Scotland last week, but I was out this morning in the autumnal sunshine in my jersey, and very nice it was too. A really lovely collection that MAP have put together for us. Check out map.cc, that's M-A-A-P.cc, to see what's available in your region. As I say, some items have completely sold out in some regions. Uh, lots of caps available in all regions, I gather, and in the UK there's good availability of most of the accessories too or at least there was when I got my last update from Map HQ. If you haven't managed to get your hands on a jersey yet, never fear, because Map are doing a new run of the men's and women's jerseys, water bottles and socks, and so the whole collection will be available again around mid-November in time for Christmas shopping. If you want to make sure you don't miss out again, go to map.cc, find the Cycling Podcast collection, and click Notify Me to get a heads up the minute that the sold-out items are restocked. In the end, uh, Enric was much, much stronger in the final climb, and uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy with the result. I must admit uh, that he was better, and uh, yeah, uh, it was a really great race, really nice, uh, nice finish, and uh, I'm happy with the shape. And what does it say about your shape after two trips to Australia and back? Yeah, it's actually, uh, compared to last year, it's much, much better uh, in this race, so I'm happy uh, that uh, I improved on, in this in particular race, and I'm looking forward for uh, Wednesday and, uh, and next Saturday. Yeah, I guess it must be a big goal, Lombardia, you will pass winner, is it in your head? Yeah, it's uh, Lombardia, uh, last year I won, uh, but it was different course. And this year uh, we go with the same mentality there uh, for the final race of the season. Well, chaps, that was Tadej Pogacar after finishing second behind Enric Mas in the Giro dell'Emilia. We alluded to this, obviously, in the first part. Well, Brian, in fact, gave us a very forensic account of the Giro dell'Emilia. And, well, Dan, you said that he's obviously going better than last year. Pogacar echoed those sentiments. But, well, Brian, let's start with you. You were on the ground looking ahead to the... Giro di Lombardia or Lombardia at the weekend. What what have we learned um, that will be important come the weekend? I think that it was quite interesting what Dan said about you know looking back at Pogacar last year where he was you know phenomenal in in Lombardia and not so much in um, in Emilia. I think it will be interesting to see because this you know next weekend will be the big showdown potentially between Pogacar and Vingegaard. Uh, since the tour, you know they haven't raced against each other since then. Vingegaard skipped, famously skipped the worlds and hasn't really done anything until he had those thousand kilometers of racing in in Croatia. Uh, Enric Mas looks extremely convincing. Uh, whether that will be enough to drop everyone on on the on the parkour that we have this year in Lombardy, I I doubt, and I, I still see both Vingegaard and and Pogacar as potentially uh, bigger favorites than him. Um, yeah, I mean it's. I, a lot of riders I spoke to in the past when I was you know, working for teams, they, they always said that Lombardy, you really have to be extremely motivated because it's so hard and it's the end of the year. You, you kind of have to make it a, a big goal in itself. Uh, and there are, you know, 
other than you know Nibali and, and Valverde finishing their cycling careers in it, I, I think we have to look to basically the best climbers in the world who are still in in good enough shape to win a monument, and there aren't really that many of those. It's it's very very rare that it's um, it's an outsider's uh, race. I, I don't see that happening. So I would still say that that like I said, Vingegaard Pogacar being being the favourites after what I've seen. I didn't see Vingegaard other than on TV. Uh, yeah, and I'll 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 admit too that even if if Pogacar did seem a little bit off the boil uh, on the San Luca, he could still win Lombardy for the second year in a row. I've got to be careful too, though, because it's a very different course to what we've seen the last yeah. few years at Lombardia, and it's not it's not a pure climbers course. And I think that's where maybe last year's course would have suited Enric Mas more, although you still had that technical descent and the runs of Bergamo. This year is very much a ponty, rep- punchy, repetitive course, quite similar to Liège on Liège this year, I'd say. Which Chiviglio is the longest, hardest climb, and it's only 10, 11 minutes. It's yeah, it's a, it's a very you don't have that big Muro de Solmano to really destroy the race like we've seen in previous editions. There's a long, there's a long, uh, there's a long flat-ish section between the Berbeno and the Gisalo. Gisalo being the climb, you know, the iconic climb that's always featured in. In, in, in the Lombardia when it's, um, uh, yeah, in any format, really. But I think that this year, Sevilla is, the, yeah, it's the final climb, but it's still with 250k in kilometers of racing. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's 9, 10% average. And then they've added an extra loop uh, over the San, um, San Fermo de la Battaglia, which is, a, which is a, a, a bit of a kicker. It's not a hard climb, but it's a kicker climb. It was where, I think it's where Bettini actually put in the winning attack when he won. Uh, the last time, so I, yeah, it's it's a punchier course, I guess, than when it finishes in Bergamo slightly. I, I still think it's the climbers' course, and I still think the strongest guy will, will come out winning in in on um, on the Como finish. We'll see. Uh, let's talk about let's talk a little bit about the course chats. It has moved around quite a bit um, over the years. Well, it's always moved around, really. The Giro Lombardia course, and we're back to a Bergamo Como format it's um last year was como to bergamo for a few years four years in a row it was bergamo to como and um, this is the way it's gone basically for the last decade um it's either started in como or finished in como either started in bergamo or finished in um bergamo um just visually chaps i'm gonna throw the cat in amongst the pigeons here i prefer the bergamo finish because i just think it's more beautiful um, the climb to Bergamo Alta over the, the, the cobblestones is quite iconic, I think. And it's a beautiful day in Bergamo. These Italian one-day races, um, it's the same applies in Milan San Remo. The ambience, the way that the atmosphere sort of, well, it... it it grows and it intensifies and it builds to a conclusion throughout the day. Um, I, th- I feel that it does that in Bergamo more than it does in Como. Um, I don't know why in Como the, the, the finish line sometimes feels as though it's it's really well, it is out of the main city in Como. It's on the it's on the side of the lake. I know, but what, 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 um, I, it, I, I don't. This is this is like sorry, gone. I, I I have this is anti Nygaard propaganda basically. Yeah, yeah. I found a home. Uh, by the shores of Lake Como because of the old parkour, albeit they were racing on the other side, but still with this with this finish, I think you know when you when you compare the beautiful shores of Lake Como to to Bergamo, which apart from Bergamo Alto, I'll give you that is is a nice little spot. They, it's got nothing on the Como finish, you know. And it's the, it's the, the majestic views of the lake, the iconic climbs, you know. You have the looming. Uh, curves on the way up to the top of the Gisalo. You have the lakeside finish with the with the final climbs. 
I mean, what more do you want in a beautiful bike race? Also, I think with Bergamo finish, with the Bergamo finish as well, there's you're going to lose this, Dan, because you've got the... Um, yeah, you've got two against one of them, I think, because I'm in agreement with Brian. It's the... I'm not sure if you actually, you probably saw the Bergamo Alto down into the city. Yeah, it's beautiful. But from 25k to go until the bottom of Bergamo Alto, you, the, the race is basically held on a motorway. Exactly. And it's incredibly and you, boring. And it's just like, yeah. it's, it's nondescript. It's, it, it could, the year that I won in 2014, there was 50 or 60 riders, I think, hit the bottom of Bergamo Alto. And it was the closest. It, uh, that's where, I think, Lombardia, you say it's a climbers race and everything. And it, it came very close to being almost effectively a bunch sprint i mean we were what 11 12 guys going to the line and i think this the the nature that lombardia needs the beauty of the race this amazing region that the race is held in lombardia it, it deserves to be held in a stunning location although obviously more often than not we don't get to see any of the scenery because of the uh the rain and the clouds and the mist around the lake yeah. but uh i'm not sure what the case will be this year what the forecast is but um it's yeah brilliant hopefully... it'll be great weather then Right, it'd be beautiful. It was going to be a beautiful day in Como, and also I, I'm sure the coffee and food is great in Bergamo, but there is also some fantastic ice cream shops shops in Como. So you can't even you can't yeah, even. And that's a, that's a, that's a slightly I can, I can detect that's a slightly barbed comment from Dan Martin. He's already anticipating what is well, or, or he's, he he can see through the veil, and he can he he's he sensed a hidden agenda behind my preference for Bergamo. <laughs> and he's and he's right because I was mainly thinking about the polenta that you get up on the in Bergamo Alta. No, but there's a breathlessness to the Bergamo finish, which I like. I must say, those last ten or fifteen minutes of the race, in a similar fashion to Milan San Remo, you don't really get. I don't really remember that many occasions when you felt that in with the Como finish, the San Fermo della Battaglia. It's tended to be the guy who has been the strongest on the climbs throughout the day has tended to emerge finally um, in that last battle on San Fermo della Battaglia. Don't you remember when uh, when Thibaut Pinot dropped um, Nibali on the Civilio and then bombed it uh, to the you know down mm. down the descent and then the San Fermo, or when Fuglsang won dropping. Uh, I think it was the Jumbo Visma rider uh, uh, to, to the win. Uh, you know, Bettini winning. You know, in the memory of his of his dead brother after uh, just a week after he won the Worlds. All those things belong to the Como finish. Anyway, I'm sensing that I'm losing this argument, so I'm going to move it on. Um, we talked about Mass and his performance in Giro d'Italia Emilia the weekend, where he showed that he was the strongest rider in the race. Dan, you don't think that this is necessarily a climber's route? Um, it, will it be hard for someone like him, even with the help of a Valverde, who uh, you know we saw last week in the Coppa Agostoni, he's riding really well. He's going to be a great ally in what's going to be his last race. But do, do, you, do you think it's difficult? It's going to be really difficult for a um, someone like Mass to to break everyone else's resistance on San Fermo della Battaglia. I think Lombardia, especially this course, is very much about positioning. And although Enric Mass will have a full team committed to him, I have a feeling that also Valverde will want to have a good showing on his last race. And he's probably more suited to this type of race because of the distance, the endurance, and also just the simple bike handling on the downhills. At Lombardia, you need to be able to descend as as well as you go up the hills and it's uh, it's not Enric's strongest point. You've seen him in, many times in the Vuelta, kind of struggling a little bit on the downhills. And uh, yes, I do think he's going to be one of the strongest guys on Chiviglia. But you've got it's a very technical circuit that final finishing loop in Lombardy, in Como this year, and also San Fermo de Battaglia is 
it's not it's not the steepest climb it's just a climb that looks really difficult after 250 kilometers whereas the first time up it's going to be all about positioning especially the two hairpins in the bottom it's really going to string out the race the the, the group will be lined out and if you're not in the first 10 20 riders on on some firm the first time up it's going to be really difficult to move up especially with the downhill and then it goes straight into the Chiviglia. so if you lose any it's it's going to be a really tense final perhaps what you were missing before from coma from the coma finish but uh but yeah it's I just don't I don't see a way that Enrique can get to the finish line solo and that's the only way he can win because I think there's a lot of stronger sprinters who can climb just as well. It's going to be a good test of his descending because we all know that at the Tour de France he had real problems with that and then went away after the Tour de France and he talks in quite vague terms at the Vuelta about all the help that he'd got. Some of the help was from some real sort of specialists on, I think there was at least one descending specialist was enlisted by Movistar to help him. And it obviously worked because of the Vuelta, his descending was pretty much on point. He didn't lose any significant time on the descents. But as you say, Dan, um, it will be a big test. And, and this is also a guy who's not really got a great record in one day races, um, and he hasn't got certainly the pedigree of uh, Pogacar or Valverde or some of the other guys that we expect to be in the mix um, at the weekend. And Brian, your fellow Dane, Jonas Vingegaard, coming off this, well, convincing performance, pretty emphatic performance in Croatia, although he didn't win the GC. I mean, as preparation for Lombardy, any thoughts on a stage race like that being being the ideal way to get ready, ready for Lombardy or not the ideal way? Well, I, uh, Dan is probably the better expert on this, but I think depending on what he's done before, is, it's, it will be the real test of, of whether his preparation is good. He's, he's apparently spent a month in Spain before Croatia, which I think is good for him considering the weather in, in Denmark. Uh, but, you know, he will have to, the, the climbing volume will, will have to come from training and, and definitely not from tour Croatia, even if there were two sort of... Um, difficult finishes but not in the same way that that Emilia would be or even Augustini and and the other one day races in Italy so and then there's also the open question is he ready to is he still able to be competitive after 250 kilometers so then you have one thing you have his recuperation his training uh, does he have uh, is does he have good enough shape to race with that kind of volume and uh, or could his freshness potentially be in his uh, in his favor, was it freshness that he lacked, or just a style of racing he didn't like? Uh, Pogacar, uh, I think that's all. That's all. One of the, those are all the open questions for for this edition of Lombardy. I think even if his um, Palmares doesn't really show anything impressive for one day races, I think if the race is hard enough and he and he is in his or close to being in top shape, I, I think I would still consider him a, a rather big favorite. Has he got any chance against Pogacar in the sprint? None such. I, 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 well, he's he's rel- he's, all, he's so. fast he's fast for a climber, but on a, on a flat, you know, we saw the for instance on the on the super planche de Befi, when those like little aggressive kicks to the line, he Pogacar in top shape is is better, but I think in a, in a flat sprint we also saw that when the way uh, Pogacar won Liège, for instance. Uh, he he can he can do a proper sprint after a hard race. So does so can Vingegaard, but I don't think he. I, I can't build a convincing case for him beating Pogacar on the line if Pogacar is good and fresh. Also, I think I think as well with the it's important to have that distance in your legs. And Pogacar has now done Quebec, Montreal, which were over two hundred kilometers. He's done the World Championships, which was what two hundred and sixty-seven. 
he's got that distance of uh, that race distance in his legs whereas going to do tour of croatia okay they had a few stages over 200 kilometers which were mainly bunch sprint stages and they just rode along like pretty easy all day so yeah i'm not expecting Vingo to have the uh to have that depth of endurance in his legs he might have the condition but also i think last year's course massively suited him a lot a lot, a lot better than at least this year's course and it's uh it's a dynamic race this year you need to know the course it's uh and having raced over those roads it it's super important to be able to know where you're going especially the Triviglio descent over the top of the climb into the descent if you've raced on those roads before it's a massive advantage and uh it's a final that's yeah it, it, it's new and but it isn't and it's just, it's the same road as traditionally been used on the on the Como finish and anybody that's done them before is uh and i think yeah, what does make, going back to Pogaccio as well, what makes him so difficult to be, beat is how do you beat him? I think it's he's got probably the sh- strongest team in the race, I want to say, with the the showing that they put in at Emilia. And I don't think he beat Wout van Aert in a sprint. I think he's, if he, after a very, very hard race on a flat sprint, he's very, very difficult to beat. So I don't, and he can descend well as well. And he's definitely the standout favourite, but there's always surprises to be had. And with modern day racing, I think we can definitely expect some, a lot of attacks on Gisela this year just to try and mix yeah. up the race. I think also he, you know, last year he decided to drop everyone quite early. He doesn't actually have to do that uh, with the way the parkour is this year, in my opinion, even if the, the Muro di Sormano is not there. The race will sort out the selection depending on what kind of breakaway goes, if, if something significant goes earlier. And there'll be enough riders wanting to make it uh, difficult, including uh, Movistar for either Valverde or Mas. So I think he has a pretty good chance of either making the selection himself or letting the parkour make the selection. And if they come to the line after the last time of San Fermo uh, in, in a five, eight-man group, which I, I doubt, even if it's still five, four riders, I still think he's the strongest man in, in that type of sprint. I agree with you, Dan. The Giro di Lombardia's route runs along the languid deep lakes of northern Italy. It is held at the beginning of October in the slightly damp autumn atmosphere and under the pale bronze autumn light. And at first, I believed it was the gentle race of the falling leaves, its nickname suggests. An end of the year classic. That was until I saw the mattresses hastily placed against the rock faces on the exit of the corners on the off chance that a rider would make a mistake. Dan Martin recognised that. Not the mattresses, and although you probably recognise those as well, but that, that piece of writing. That's uh, an excerpt from my book that's about to be released next week, actually. The 13th it's about, of October. It's about to drop. Yeah. It's about to drop any second, isn't it, Dan? There are probably bootleg copies already on the internet, but it is, um, it is coming out officially on 13th of October. Chased by pandas. extensively about... Mm. Yes, Chased by pandas. There's another. There's a subtitle, isn't there? The Mysterious Life of... Go on, you tell us. Yeah. You know what? I don't even remember. The mysterious life of a racing cyclist or, or the, behind the cycling world or something like that. Anyway, that's a very poor form of me not remembering. But it's a very good book because I've been reading it. I've been tucking into it this morning. Um, didn't have long, but I've already already devoured uh, at least 100 pages or so. And excellent it is too, Dan. And there's a lot in there about uh, Giro di Lombardia because it's a race that in some ways characterized your career i mean you had in 2009 you had a big ride there it was was it your first appearance in lombardia where you attacked on the gizalo and i think you were the first over there gizalo it was actually my day, second i did it a... in i did the race in 2008 but i was i was empty from a neo pro season when i did a hell of a lot of racing especially across august and september and 
yeah, I think that, that that year I actually backed up. I did tour of Denmark, tour of Portugal, tour of Ireland, tour of Britain, back to back, and it was a uh, a bit a bit too much for an Euro. I think 30, 36 days racing in seven weeks or, or in eight weeks or some something like that, or and if, something ridiculous. But it was all in the, in the aid of getting stronger, and uh, yeah. So, but two thousand nine was my first good performance, uh, first finishing performance, and that's where the mattresses came in. Whereas uh, to put a bit of color behind that. The, the race used to go over Saint, uh, the Gisalo and then descend towards Como and then we would climb a different way up to Chiviglio and then we would descend the side that the race now comes up uh, into into Como and then go straight to San Fermo and to, to use the same finish that we the race is using this year. So, But the, uh, the descent is so steep that the couple of switchbacks at the bottom on, on the way down they used to put these mattresses and i think there's these famous images of paolo bottini who we all remember like almost yeah almost bouncing off the mattresses to take the corners properly well we'll get to brian nygaard another man who's bounced off a few mattresses in the como region in a minute dan but just tell us dan to, to take us to a typical week before the Giro Lombardia or, or a successful week before Lombardia. You talked a minute ago or in the second part about how important it is or it was to know the route. I mean, would you do recons? Was there a, a hotel where your team always used to stay? I mean, I guess because the races moved around a bit, perhaps not. But tell us about the, the week. What was, what was the ideal week for you before Lombardia? Uh, I mean, I always used to Lombard, Lombardia because it, it was such a great weeks racing we used to have a really good classics crew um we'd spend the week in the hotel we'd generally go from emilia uh and then maybe big early taking another italian one day race move on to piemonte and then lombardia on the saturday and traditionally i would it was quite a little bit controversial at the time being such a young rider doing this but i would because piemonte was normally on the thursday ahead of lombardia on the saturday i'd really put my all my focus on lombardia and i would stop at uh stop piemonte at the feed zone after about 70 to 100 kilometers just simply using it as a, a way to open my legs up before the race on saturday and that seemed to work every year and it was just a recon i generally try to do it earlier in the season uh depends if the course changed it didn't used to it used to have a pretty consistent run of routes back then we changed from i did the coma recon with um i went to say with Dow Olympi. Who lived close to Como in 2009 in the in the summer, I believe it was in maybe around August time, and uh, yeah, managed to take in the course then. And but every year, it's one of those things that when you look back, and it's maybe something we can look into more this year with the obviously arrival of we've talked about Enric Mass being so strong. Every year that I was very good at Lombardia, I had just come out of the Vuelta, and I think it shows mm. it, it does come down to that whole. It's not necessarily motivation, but it's just impossible to replicate the load that a Grand Tour gives you at this point in the season. And if you've done the Tour de France, you generally, by this point in the year, you're starting to be tired and you're, you're uh, mentally, it's difficult, it's challenging to really tr- put in the same training load as a, as a Grand Tour. Whereas uh, every year I did the Vuelta, I kind of arrived at, you don't really need to train before Lombardia. And it means you can just arrive in this top, top condition without really mentally straining yourself. And then you can put this you're mentally fresh to really be able to challenge what is a, is it, it's a demanding race. It, it requires concentration. And that's what, uh, where a lot of guys fall back, especially with the often poor weather or even avoiding the, the fallen leaves, which make the race actually quite treacherous. You know, even, even when the weather is good, you still have this humidity in Lombardia that makes the road quite slippery. 
And especially on these technical downhills, you always need to be fighting for position. You need to be in the front and remain 100% concentrated. So, yeah, it's it's a race that you, unlike the other classics, it's difficult to learn because they keep changing the course. But, yeah, recon is important, but it's not important as the other races, as, as the other races, as the other big classics. But it's uh, it's still good to know where you're going. And obviously, yeah, it's uh, it, but it is a race that if you have the legs, you can be in front. It's funny, Dan, you talk about the positioning and it being stressful and you won two monuments. You also won Liege-Bastogne-Liege. Of the two, Liege is the one that I associate with, you know, fight for position, half of a lot of the teams being taken up by, you know, big rulers and and there being a big sort of dose, a big element of, of what is sort of more typical, more quintessential Belgian classic style racing, whereas Lombardy might... When I think of Lombardy, mind's, mind's eye sort of races to well, something that looks a bit more like a Grand Tour mountain stage. Um, you know, partly we, we read out that passage from your book, the sort of languid, the, you know, the mist that hangs over the lakes and this, you know, the beautiful colours and stuff. And it, it, I guess it feels a little bit calmer, a little bit more serene, but you're telling us that it's not like that at all. I think as well that comes down to the core changes. I think since, since 2014, 2015 maybe, They've really, RCS have really tried to make the race harder and harder. And I remember that, I think it was 2016. It was, I think it was over 5,000 meters climbing or something ridiculous. And same as last mm. year. Last year, had, there was real mountains in the race. It wasn't the typical Lombardia that we used to see. Like pa- Paolo Bettini wouldn't have won last year's Lombardia. And he was renowned as being the favorite, the perennial favorite every year, right? And Philippe Joubert the same. Yeah. It, it was generally a classics riders race, a hilly classics riders race where you saw yeah, guys like Gilbert, Paolo Bettini, uh, Vinokurov. It was a Grand Tour riders race, but also you needed to have a multifaceted approach. to the. You need to be able to sprint, ascend, be a ruler as well. So it was an all-rounders race rather than a pure climbers race that it's now tended to become the last few years as these yeah, really long climbs, starting with Somano, but then it's got even more extreme in the last few years. I think the interesting change this year compared to the say standard if you can even call it that arrive in in Como is that they've so they scrapped the the Muro di Sormano which we've all known this really narrow ridiculously steep road from the lake uh, all the uh, up and then the really difficult descent the one where Rempueva Napoleon almost finished his career before before it started so that's all gone now so that means that the relevance of the Madonna del Gisallo you know this very famous climb with the with the chapel and and yeah the one of the holiest places in cycling it's a lot more central now but still it's some 60 kilometers from the from the finish but then the finish as such the the last couple of climbs with Chivillo being the hardest one is a lot more compact so it'll be i think it'll be a different dynamic with the muro di sumano and that difficult descent from it down towards back towards the lake it's going to change the dynamics a little bit, and I'll be interested to see in, in what tactical approach the different teams will, will use. I think that the first big real attack will be on the Gisalo, and that, that could take away the winning group already. Yeah, you mentioned, or Dan mentioned Paolo Bettini there. I mean, he was a rider who at least on at least one of the occasions when he won Lombardy, uh, he made his decisive move on the Gisalo, but it's a bit of a paradox. It's the most iconic climb in Lombardy and in Lombardy's history yet quite rarely has it been decisive because it's difficult it's difficult to sort of shoehorn it in whether you finish in Bergamo or Como it's difficult to put it close to the finish isn't it and it's only Uh, it's only really hard at the bottom it's sort of the first 4k are really hard but then there's actually descent and then it rises a little bit up towards the bell tower so it's it's not an easy 
platform for attacking. It's also that long, big road downhill afterwards towards Como. And then, yeah, yeah I think uh, any group that gets away there is going to have a difficult time getting getting to the finish, this, especially this year, because you're going to have the run all the way down into Como to do the San Thermo. I think that's the next climb on the on the course. And there's going to be a huge fight for position going to San Fermo because that's really going to be the crucial point in the race. I don't, I don't expect any attacks on San Fermo, but it's such a small road and narrow and twisting. And then you've got the, the fast ascent to the, directly into the bottom of Chiviglio, which is uh, that that's the hardest, most that's, that's where the race winning move potentially will happen. It's a really, yeah. really tough climb. But it's. Uh, I think the winner. I think the winner will come from the first per, first ride on top of Chivilio, even if they still have the San Fermo afterwards. If it's if, if it pans out the way I I think or I hope it will be, be a beautiful race that way. But I mean, Chivilio is is one of the hardest climbs in any classic, and it's it's actually not that short. It's for twelve minutes, I think, normally. So, yeah, four. I think it's four kilometers, eleven percent average, which is yeah, as you say, brutal. Dan. We've talked about your book, and I said that there are quite lengthy passages in there dedicated to Lombardy. Just thinking about that 2014 win, when you revisited that in the process of writing the book, um, well, what feelings did that kind of conjure up, and what feelings does it always conjure up when you think about that day, and what are the sort of images that come most readily to your mind? I think, ironically, it was probably the course that suited me the least of all the times that I rode Lombardia, and it was the race that I... I had a plan on how to win the race and it really didn't work out, which is, it shows how I think to be a classic rider, you really need to be dynamic and, and kind of let the race open up and tactically be aware because it's, uh, yeah, I planned to attack on the last climb, obviously, but there were so many spectators on the side of the road that we couldn't actually, we were basically in single file. And I think Philippe Joubert was second or third in the group. So he was, had the position to be able to launch over the top, but, um, when, once the road widened up, but it, um, yeah, it, it was just an opportune, opportunity that uh, I had a plan to be first into the last corner and my attack was more, it was all in to be first into the last corner, whether the guys were on my wheel or not. And in the end, they weren't. And I managed to obviously get get it across the finish line. But it was probably the easiest edition of Lombardia that I rode, simply because of the court. It, it didn't have, I mean, even the penultimate climb, which was, I think, 30, 40, maybe even 50 kilometers to go, wasn't even that hard. And that's what led to a, a sizable group coming into Bergamo Alto for the uh, for the final. So it was, um, yeah, the, the big climbs were really early in the race and it was a hard race as always. I think, yeah, still over 3,000 metres climbing. And you but, accelerated, you went away from... Yeah, I just, I just found that hole. I just found, like, it's, it was it, using the elastic, we sprinted out of the last corner, or the penultimate, penultimate yeah. corner. We sprinted out of it as you always do and uh, with the elastic of, the, of taking the corner and I was in last position. And I just I just kept sprinting when the other guys kind of eased off the pedals, kind of to start the cat and mouse game. I just kept sprinting and uh, carried that momentum past everybody, and I think played off obviously the fact that everybody was kind of look, looking at the better sprinters in the group and expecting them to chase. And it was just at that point, all you need is that moment's hesitation to be able to uh, to get enough of a gap, and especially once I knew that with the last corner, with I think 200 meters to go, 250 meters to go you needed to be first or second to the last corner anyway. So it was a case of I didn't even look behind. If they were on my wheel, I still had a chance of being on the podium, and that was really the aim that day. And to to obviously, I didn't even look I didn't look around until about 50 metres before the finish line. I said that Brian Nygaard used to live in Como. I, I forgot that he also left his grubby fingerprints over an edition of uh, 
in Lombardia in 2011. Am I right, Brian? A rider yeah. you recruited for a team that you started um, won in very surprising, also in very surprising fashion because no one had tipped him. Uh, he was called Oliver Zalg. He was Swiss and he was a former chimney sweep. And I remember I was there that day. The, the finish was in Lecco. And, well, we were all left open-mouthed. But tell us about Oliver Zaug and signing Oliver Zaug. I don't know if you were still at the team no, when no. He, he did. I was, tell I us was about at, that. I was, I was at the lake, but on the other shore from Lecco, where, where I had a house for, for a while. Um, I think it was the only pro win of Oliver Zaug. Was it always second? Yeah. Um, it was sort of like I was he when we when we founded the team we kind of like picked a rider each. We took turns, Kim Anderson and I, and uh, he came up as one of those sort of stable guys who would be a good helper and and quite sort of um, a good like um, a quite loyal guy, but but not a, not a spectacular rider. And I was very I was happy even if i wasn't on the team anymore and, and hated the owner with a vengeance i still was extremely happy to see sao win you know i'm sorry to, to say that and it, it was just it was just a complete surprise an absolute complete surprise that he was able to ride away there was a, i think there was that uh, final was also different in the sense there was a, a quite a steep quite narrow climb up to i think it was, it was a, small, yeah. a small a small chapel uh, yeah, and I remember watching it at home from the other sh uh, shore of the lake, thinking that I'm pretty close, but also really far away. And it was sort of with mixed feelings because that team then eventually had already changed with the with the arrival of Johan Bruniel, and and I, I had no interest in being in part of that, obviously. So yeah, bit bit of bittersweet, I suppose. Bit same as as Dan Martin probably feels about the race. I used to love that finish. Actually, that was a really cool finish with the little climb and then the 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 race along the lake. That, as you say, it kind of it was a mix between the Como finish and the Bergamo finish, whereby you had exactly. no climb to attack on, but then it was this cat and mouse game towards the line. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. This is Lionel again. I'm back from my ride in Scotland and I think I can report that I'm about 33.3% beta fuel after getting myself around the six stages of the Tour de Cosse. Um, I'm also probably 33.3% haggis and 33.3% lawn sausage after the well, I didn't have a full Scottish breakfast every morning, but probably four mornings out of six I did. Very enjoyable they were too, but it was the beta fuel that really kept me topped up over the course of the week as we ticked off the kilometres on our ride from Bonnie Rig to Dingwall. The whole series will be out for Explore a bit later on this year. In the meantime, you know the message. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. Well, chaps, in the concluding part of today's podcast, we'll continue to talk about the Giro di Lombardia in Lombardia. Dan, we've talked about your victory in 2014. You had some other near misses. You had some heartache in Lombardia as well. But last year, just 12 months ago, it was also the last race of your career. I mean, was that just a... Uh, a sort of convenient serendipitous opportunity because it was the last race of the season and you had decided you, you you'd had enough or um, were you quite adamant that you wanted to finish at a race in a place that meant a lot to you 
think it's quite um, poetic, actually, that it finished, especially that the last year's edition finished in Bergamo. Uh, obviously, I won in 2014, so it's uh, yeah, it, it was a beautiful way to finish. I, I had friends at the finish line, and it was um, yeah, just although the the day wasn't didn't really go to plan. How I uh, obviously would have nice been nice to go out on a on a real big high, but at the same time, I was realistic of my chances going in, and it was the hardest course I've ever ridden. I think apart from 2016, so probably the second hardest course. And yeah, it, it was just a brutal day's racing. I think it was, and it really did cement my yeah cement my decision that it was the right one. That uh, mainly because I didn't have to follow any of these crazy guys down a slightly damp downhill anymore because it was it was a it was just a brutal day's racing. It was really the rate the pace was really high all day. Like I think it was one of the highest average power outputs I've ever done in a one day race, and it just showed me that yeah you know what this is uh it's it I just had enough of suffering, and that's why yeah I, it was it was a good way because if it had been a really if the race had gone completely how I wanted it to go and I got on the podium or got a result at least, I maybe would have raised question marks as to whether I was making the right decision. But the fact that I completely got my ass kicked, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I just spent the whole day suffering and just wishing it was over. Even though I still managed to, I was finishing the second group still, so I wasn't miles behind. I think I was, if I had just bothered to sprint from the group I was in, I probably would have got top 20, you know, so... It was uh, it was not a disastrous of a day, but and it still showed that I had a decent level. But it just it just showed me that I was just over suffering. Dan, were, were you suffering because you had also lost some of the desire to suffer in training, or were you suffering because there had been a physical deterioration that you'd noticed over a period of months and maybe a couple of years? No, I think I just. I was really enjoying training still, to be honest. I was really enjoying going out and the structure of that and the challenge of and challenging myself in training. It was just the, uh, yeah, I mean, mate, I don't know why. I think it was just a case of, yeah, I, I, I just needed a change. I think it's it's a long time and every year, that's also why I needed to take it. I took a decent off-season break every year because at the end of the season, I do think that physically you don't, potentially need the rest it's more a mental break from the from from suffering from pushing yourself day in day out and from hurting yourself and that mental refresh at the end of the year really recharges the batteries and because because every season towards the october time you do start to think oh i've had enough of pushing myself now and over 15 years of doing that it just got to a point whereby it was just enough you know i just had enough then it was uh i think racing's also changed i think it was very much a Lombardia used to be the break would go quite easily at the start or some years it would take 30, 20, 30, 40 kilometers but then you kind of ride along talking and chatting mm. and it would be a very typical I guess we'd call it typical Italian way of racing the, the slow yeah. build up to a grand finale whereas now the racing is just all in all day and it's just such hard hard racing and that was partly due last year because we did have that little bit of a chat but then because it was such a strong breakaway once the chasing started it was it was full on all day and it was, uh, yeah, it, it just the whole level of the sport has just risen up. And it's, although it was still possible for me to be competitive, it just wasn't, it was getting harder and harder to, you just have to, everybody else is willing to push the limits and go on these long training camps. Even, I mean, Jonas Vingegaard, the Tour de France winner has just been on a three-week training camp to prepare for these races. 
mm. that 10 years ago that would never have happened you know so it's uh the Vuelta was the training camp of Lombardia effectively and you'd, you'd openly see guys saying that so it's uh it just shows the, the level of professionalism in the sport now has just gone so high that everybody on the start line is ready to go whereas 10 years ago it would have been a handful of like there would have been 10 names who were really motivated and half the field just were thinking their holidays already Dan, it's going to be the last hurrah, the last race for a couple of illustrious riders at the weekend. Uh, Vincenzo Nibali and Alejandro Valverde are both riding their last race at Lombardia on Saturday. Just talk to us a little bit about your relationship with those two, both riders with whom you locked horns really on a regular basis. Similar riders to you in some respects, certainly Valverde. Yeah, definitely. Alejandro, obviously, I've known raced against him for a long time and we had a very similar race program for many many years even starting racing in races like tour of med in 2008-2009 in the same races valencia the i quite often shared a spanish race program with him he often going up against obviously not only the classics but catalonia and then uh, and then dauphine tour de france walter whereas vincenzo obviously used to go more against the giro and so i know alejandro a lot more than uh, nibali but yeah, it's almost like a massive change in the guard this year. Obviously, these are two legends of the sport. They're Grand Tour winners, they're Classics winners. And then, uh, yeah, they're going to be, they're characters of the sport. And it's, yeah, it's going to be strange, I think, for a lot of fans because that's something that we can see, what I think is changing slightly in the sport. And potentially this is a whole new podcast <laughs> discussion when we start here, but the longevity of careers is questionable now in my opinion are we going to see somebody like Alejandro or in Vincenzo again that are sustainably in the front of the echelons of the sport for 15 years nearly 20 years in Alejandro's case you know and I don't see the current crop of riders being able to sustain their their careers for that long I remember talking to um, Shane Bannon my, my old boss at Green Edge about this and he, he said a lot changed uh, after it became, I mean, you would even say almost a trend, but but not potentially imperative that you did such long stretches of altitude training. You know, when you think of the ways Bradley Wiggins prepared to, for his one tour win, or how uh, Chris Froome prepared for his tour wins, that how how much actually goes into riding that way and preparing yourself that way. He, he thought that it was going to mean that a lot of riders' career would be shorter because they, the potential of burning out, either physically or mentally, is a lot more prevalent in, in this modern way of, of preparing yourself. Do you, do you see any likelihood in that? Yeah, definitely. I think that's what the last two years of my career, I definitely went all in as far as I didn't do the training camps, but the level of training and professionalism that I, I really stepped up and my numbers got better as well. That's why I was able to stay competitive. But I think it's also the fans that will suffer because you don't get this long-term relationship with the characters within the sport. If, if there's a new guy, I mean, just look at the Tour de France the last few years, other than Tadej Pogacar winning two years in a row. It's almost like a it's, there's different contenders every year. You don't get that consistent top five, top ten riders. That There was a few years probably, like if you say, from 2012, 2013 until 2018, 2019, where five or six of the top 10 of the Tour de France was regularly the same guys or there was the same favorites list year after year 
And I think that's where, as cycling fans, you kind of get, a, you build a relationship, you build this fandom whereby people get their favourite riders. But if those favourite riders are changing every year, or the, the, the guys winning are changing every year, it's uh, it gets a little bit more, more more difficult to relate to. No, I also think, I mean, there's a lot of things go into the reality of modern cycling. But one thing that's also now compared to, to 10 years ago, there's a lot of there's a lot more money in cycling now than there used to be, I think, and top end, yeah, the top at, end at, the, at the top end exactly, yeah. So you you don't need a, a ten year career to set yourself up for life if, if you're a, if you're a you know one of the 10, 15 best riders in the, in the peloton. You 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 probably be pretty well off after a handful of years in terms of the financial perspective. I'm not saying that that'll that'll force riders to race less if they really want to be bike riders. But I think it has something to say in, in the longevity of Korea and also the possibility to be competitive for such a long time. A couple of races before um, Lombardy at the weekend, Trevalli, Varesine, which will give some clues, I think, on Wednesday. And Pogacar was riding there. And Gran Piemonte, which will tell us nothing about Lombardy because it's pretty flat. And then the races in Veneto the week after Lombardy. Also at the weekend, Filippo Ganna is taking on the hour record in Grenken. Believe it or not, I'm going to be there in uh, an indoor cycling stadium somewhere where I would never usually tread. Um, 55.548 kilometers, Dan Bigham's record. That's what Ganna's got to be. I think most people think he's going to beat it. Some people think he's even going to get to 60 kilometers. I think that's pretty far-fetched. Um, but that concludes the entertainment for today. I'm going to thank you, Dan Martin, and we'll wish you a very happy rest of your holiday in Tenerife, low-altitude training camp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to thank you Brian Nygaard what did we call you at the start of the podcast Dracula the, the cycling Dracula the, ex- the accidental cycling tourist I'll be heading up to uh, to my old hometown in uh, close to Cornwall uh, for the weekend so yeah, maybe I can bring back some better sound bites this time I should also say that we've got an episode of the cycling podcast Femina coming out this week that will drop any day and in that you'll get a full review of the world championships in Wollongong from a women's point of view um, or from the point of view of the women's races of course we covered the men's races last week in the podcast and we will be back next week I should also say um, very warm congratulations rousing Redounding congratulations to uh, Lionel Burney, who, well, as you've heard in this episode, completed his tour de Cosse last week, his tour of Scotland. And, um, well, we'll be hearing from Lionel in the regular podcast very soon. Thank you, chaps. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney. 